You are listening to episode 274 on University of Adversity. Because like, I, 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 I'm, so I'm eight years sober now. And so I haven't like revisited that sober, that, or that addict in eight, in eight years, really. Like I hadn't like, I, you know, I knew it was there and I did work on it and I did make, like I made my amends and I did the, the character defects and all the things that you need to do to get sober. But I had never actually sat there and looked at like, you know, I was still, I was still like, that addict was still living inside of me. Life is going to give you challenges, struggles. It's going to force you to face your fears. Even though these may feel like your worst enemy, in truth, these are actually your greatest allies. My name is Lance Isios. Welcome to the University of Adversity. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. If you guys are brand new here, welcome to University of Adversity. All you regular listeners, welcome back. You guys can hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to. If you are wanting to watch this on YouTube, go ahead and watch it over there and subscribe there also. And if you get value from this, please leave us a review on Apple or share this with a friend, tag us in a story, anything you can do to show that you love the episode. Today's guest, his name is Sam Morris. We had an incredible conversation. He went from tennis player to addict, but now he's also the founder of the Unbreakable Human Collective, where his mission is to help one million, to help one billion humans slay their dragons, raise their vibrations, and save themselves from all the things that he faced while achieving and overcoming his addiction in 2012. In addition to that, he serves as a managing director and the chief culture officer for Five to Flow LLC, a global collective that builds integrative organizational wellness solutions designed to achieve and sustain peak performance. So as you guys will see, he was a he was a rising tennis star doing very well. He fell off his path, became an addict, and he's lived to tell the truth about that. Listen to this right till the end. We are going to show you guys how psychedelics and how plant medicine helped him through his addiction and helped him to get through what he was going through. And you guys, I'm telling you, you're going to love this episode. He is an inspirational dude. We had an incredible conversation and it was a pleasure to uh, to drop in. So without further ado, Sam Morris coming right up. Mr. Sam Morris, <laughs> welcome to the show, brother. Thanks, brother. Great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. I am super pumped for this. Yeah, bro. We a uh, couple weeks off of uh, Sedona. Yeah. So you're in lovely Austin, a place that I want to go very badly at some point. I feel like I'm being called there and I've just finished my quarantine after that amazing experience in Sedona. First off, before we get into like some deep stuff, how are you feeling? How are you feeling after Sedona? And what has been your takeaway in your life? What have you applied? What's going on? Wow, that's a good question. Um, so yeah, I mean, I heard like, so this is my first trimester in fit for service. And I heard everyone you know, I saw after Tahoe and talking about the integration and the you know, kind of like the recalibration in society. And I was like, I didn't really know how, <clears throat> how it was going to look, but the first week was pretty much a complete mess. And it was like, it was actually a lot, a lot about like self-forgiveness because I took an extra week in Sedona just to kind of like hang out there and smart. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was cool. It was cool that it was like, you know, we got to hang out with some FFSers and we did some hikes and some other stuff and some journeys and stuff like that. But coming back, I got back late Sunday night and then that first week back was like, whoa, <laughs> You know, it's kind of like, this is real world. And so I had to like really <clears throat> just be gentle with myself in a sense of like not expect 
too much, you know, like for one, like I got back late Sunday night, just like the physical aspect of it. But then the, the emotional stuff about like, just really like, cause that week in Sedona was nice, but it was also kind of like halfway home. You know, it wasn't like all the way back. So it was nice to like get back into like the real swing of things and just like understand that like, these are the adjustments and the downloads from Sedona, which and the downloads from Sedona, I mean, they're still coming in. But the mm-hmm. big one for me was, you know, that Friday, man, with uh, Stefanos and Christine. Yeah. I mean, that was, that just blew my doors off. Like, you know, I, 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 I kind of left that night thinking to myself, like, I'm pretty sure I'll never be the same person again. Mm. Just because seeing like, you know, that the, all the exercises we did with the, you know, the walking forward and the, the bowing down and then the, the ladies with the hands on our hearts and, and all that stuff was just, you know, to, to really get in touch with that. And then from that point, like even the, I did an energy work with, uh, um, I did an energy uh, healing session the next night and the same thing, the feminine came up for me. He was like, you know what? Like, he's like, you need to work on like letting go of, he called out like an ex-girlfriend, like the, my most recent relationship. He's like, you need to let go of her. He's like, it's been two years. I didn't tell him any of this. I was like, whoa. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. So he's just like, he just like had his hands on me and like was like, your whole left side is just blocked up, which is the feminine side. And so I've been really working on a lot more of, you know, being in that feminine energy of like, of being, you know, because the masculine is the do, 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 like let's fix, fix, fix. And the feminine is just like the be and accept and hold space. And so I've really been trying to like be, be gentle with myself, really. And mm-hmm. that started that week, you know, that week coming back it was like, you know, I was, I was kind of fluctuating between like not beating myself up. That's too aggressive, but it was just like kind of hard on myself for not being able to like really get back into the flow. And it was just the, the message that kept coming was, you know, like be gentle with yourself, just be gentle. Like this is, this is your recalibration week, get a weekend, get, get through this week, get a weekend in, and then you'll, you know, you'll get back into the swing in the, in the next couple of weeks. Hmm. I think that's such a smart idea to take that time. I, you know, if I have any regrets, I regret that not taking more time. I guess I was worried about like staying there too long or something. Like I had to come back and now I realize I'm like, shit, that would have been so powerful to stay because we were so busy and there was so much going on. And to be able to sit in that energy of Sedona is you want to be in that as long as possible. And, you know, I did a solo episode you guys can go listen to um, the last few episodes. I forget what number it is, but I explained the whole journey and it was hard for me to really like, it's, it's hard to explain in words sometimes. You know, words just don't do it justice. Yeah. That experience was just so powerful. <coughs> I, um, I think back and I'm like, shit, I should have, because I could feel the shift right away, right? And coming back to the city versus out in the desert or out in whatever that you want to call that environment. It's like, it's, it's, it really is amazing. So that's great. And yeah, that, that specific workshop was huge. And I talked about that as well in the episode and he's going to come on the show. Stefanos is going to come on and I really want to get into that because that was, that one caught me off guard. I wasn't expecting that. And like, seeing everybody like even seeing Aubrey and Kyle and everybody involved and everybody just like crying. Like it was fucking powerful, bro. Everyone was in the trenches. And, and I had Anahata as my like woman that I was, wow. Me and Alex, um, I think it was reuse. I forget how to say artist. We had her, both of us. And it was just like so powerful. 
and seeing and because she's a powerful woman he's a powerful yeah, yeah. dude i was just like wow this is crazy mm-hmm. and it was so emotional and it really it really struck a chord with me man about that feminine and really like growing up the respect for women maybe wasn't there like it should have been and i'm really starting to learn that now that mm-hmm. it's it's hard for me to explain you know yeah, but it's I, like I the totally love we got to see them and we have to see them as um, more than just sex or more than just physical attraction, you know? And in a lot of times in the world that we live in, that's kind of the programming, right? Yeah, totally. Especially with all the dating apps now, it's like so yeah. quick, quick hits, swipe right, swipe left. Like, yeah, so little substance to it. And then, you know, like when I, like it was, when we first bowed down, it was, it was like, what I'm, I was into it. I was like, okay, we're doing this. I'm here. Like I'm totally open to it. And then when it was, mm-hmm. I kind of felt like, literally felt like my back kind of crack open and like open my heart, like remove myself, like me from the situation, just let mm-hmm. this woman kind of like feel and, and like express what she's been through. Yeah. That was like, I mean, and then I, at one point when I felt her tears dropping on the back of my head and I was just like, <laughs> I lost it. I was like, yeah. this, this is super powerful. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Just hearing and then that, that, and... that, that solo episode you did was awesome. Man. I listened to that. Oh, right thank you, you brother. Down. Yeah. That, and that quote from your soul wander, dude, uh, I don't know where I'm going, but I know where I need to be. Yeah. Oh, that's been ringing in my head ever since, man. Really? Uh, yeah. Dude, that's the, uh, thank you for that, bro. Because I've been, I've been thinking about that and why that quote came up. And I was even like, we were talking before because Kyle's going to come on the show. And I was like, I got to ask him what the fuck that means. <laughs> yeah. I, think I, I think I know what it means. I think I've unpacked it a little bit, you know? And I don't know where I'm going, but I know where I have to be. It's like, I feel that that quote really means stay in your heart, you know? Like our ego is going to try and take us to where we think we should go and what we should do. And it's going to guide us, right? Keep us safe. But I think at the end of the day, we need to be, and I always know that I need to be in my heart. Yeah. That's what I got from it, man. Like I'm still unpacking it. And that was over and over in my head on that journey. Like I was like, why does this keep coming up? I need to, I need to sit with this. It's crazy that, you know, you're just wandering around the desert and that comes up. Like, it's just, the, it's, the per, it's perfect. And I think for me, like when I was thinking about it, you know, like one of my big things is um, there's a mantra that I use a lot and it's, I don't know, I don't care. It doesn't matter. And it's all about how, like, I don't know how, I don't care how, it doesn't matter how. Cause like, that's the masculine. We get so wrapped up in how, how is this going to happen? Like you want a million dollars. Like how am I going to get a million dollars? You think it's, you know, doing podcasts or coaching or writing books or, working for IBM, whatever it is, but you know what? You could win the lottery tomorrow and get a million dollars. You don't know how it's going to happen. And for you, like with that quote, it was like, you know, like I know where I need to be. I need to be here doing what I need to do every day and the how will take care of itself. Yeah. And it it, it was fucking with me a bit though, bro, because I'm like, well, I want to know where I'm going. (laughs) (laughs) Like I want to know, but really, we don't really know. Like, you know, none of us really know. Like we, we, we obviously can create the life we want, but we don't really know what's tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Like all we can do is be in the moment. That's what creates tomorrow, right? Yeah. So that that was huge, and and like the surrendering and and yeah, wow, yeah, that's um, 
That's that's crazy download, man. How was the Seriously. Soul Wonder for you, bro? How was that? Uh, the Soul Wonder was really good for me. It was uh, so it, it, I was I felt like that like um, my first few steps. I was like, "Fuck, I'm here for five hours. Like, what am I gonna do?" <laughs> that's exactly. I'm what in I was. the desert for five hours. This yeah. is like, like I don't know where where am I gonna go. And then I started kind of like I kind of like it was like a reverse engineer. I, I I reversed it from that. Like, okay. Then I was like, okay, well, I'm here for five hours. Let's. You know, like I see it, like pick a few spots and we'll go there. And then as I did that, even like further reverse engineer, like I saw a spot over on the mountain I wanted to climb to, like a rock that looked like I could get there. And even there, like you you take a turn and there's like the, the bushes, like there's like thorns, literally cactuses that you just can't get through. And you got to like really just kind of like course correct all the time. And so it, it just came up for me that like, you know, like every step along the way, like just be mindful of every step along the way. And then really just like, if you find a spot, like, okay, great. I got to this spot. I still have four and a half hours to go. Like, <laughs> so hang out for a minute, like enjoy it. Like you don't have to like get to all these spots right away. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like just relax and be just like, be with the desert, be with like myself, which is a really hard thing. But for me coming out of that was, you know, it was a lot of, um, one of the things was like mother earth, like my connection. So this was like the last day really of the kind of the work. And so I had been in that feminine, uh, masculine workshop and then the energy healing and the feminine was coming for me. So I, I was literally like kind of like really trying to ground myself in mother earth. And what was she offering me as far as like the path, the sun, um, rocks to sit on. And I picked up a few rocks along the way that were, I, I collect heart shaped rocks wherever I go. So I picked up a couple of those along the way and it was just really cool to kind of just like, take all those levels back from like, I'm going to be here for five hours to like, what's the next step involved? Yeah, dude, it's, I've been telling the story to people and I, I, you know, I've been saying like, how often do we go out with no agenda just without, you know, we got to get there or we got to do this or we got to do that. Never, man. Like, I don't know if I've ever done that before. And there was something so liberating about it. Like, it's, it is liberating. You're right. Like yeah. you just let go of like the fact that like I I'm gonna get my path is gonna be cut off here and like it, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. I'll just find another way. But you're right. Now that you mention it, man. Like I don't remember the last time I went out with like I'm going to Starbucks or to the gym or to a meeting or whatever it is. Like there's always like it's always like here to there. Always, man. Yeah, always. Crazy. And and nature is such a mirror. Hmm. Like it really is. And like. I'll admit, man, I almost slept in that day. I almost didn't want to go. I was tired. And I was like, oh, man, I don't want to go do that. And, you know, even the pre-talk with Tim Cork, and I'm like, fuck, this is like, I'm a little, I just, I don't know. And that resistance is exactly what I needed. And nature is a mirror. Like you get our perception of what we see and where we go. And, you know, we see what we need to see. And that is directly reflection. And if you really pay attention, those things that we're seeing have meaning to them. But I think we get programmed into this, this way of thinking that everything is just an accident. Oh, I just, it's a fluke. Oh yeah. That's just a, it's, it it just happens like that, you know, but the synchronicities of what we see in our life is really interesting. And the more you pay attention to that and the more you become aware of that, the more fun life gets, right? Like we live in a world where everybody's just zombies all the time. You don't look up from your phone. You could meet the uh, love of your life potentially, but you don't even see them. 
-hmm. Like we're so blinded to everything else. But when you go out into nature and you connect and you just look at what's in front of you and really understand, that can be really powerful. I mean, everything is not going to be like meaningful all the time. But I think the, uh, the ability to pay attention mm. in the moment and the curiosity for things, yeah. that's when you're going to see the synchronicities. And they're not just flukes. They're not just, they happen for a reason. And I, I believe that. And the more I feel like I buy into that, the more I see them. Yeah. I mean, like coincidence, I don't even use that word anymore. Accidents, hardly ever use that word anymore. It's all synchronicities. Like if you have that present moment awareness, there's so much available to you. Mm. And that's when people are like, you know, like you think about someone or you like see something that reminds you of someone and then they call you like all, all the things that we can talk about, the synchronicities, how they manifest. Like it, it's, it's almost stopped being mind blowing, but at the same time, it's completely mind blowing. Mm. You know, the, they're just like the, the, the sheer mass of them. They're all over the place. Yeah. And it's crazy when you can just like, like you said, take that step back and just be like, that's really freaking cool. Yeah, dude. So as we talked about before, um, just to give you guys, the listeners, a little bit of context. Um, I remember, so I took the second trimester off of Fit for Service this year. And then I rejoined in the third. And because of COVID and everything. And I remember our men's call. We discussed this a bit, but I just want to give everybody the context. We discussed kind of like, you know, the new people were on the call and, you know, I was kind of new meeting people. And I remember hearing your story about your addictions and what you had gone through and how you were able to get through it. Because your journey, addiction is such a, a, such a powerful thing. These, like people are addicted to so many things, but yours with drugs and recovery was just like, it really sparked um, a curiosity in me and I'm really glad that we got to connect because now, you know, this is going to help a lot of people and I'm very confident of that. So where I would love to start, bro, is how did you, what was your life like before addiction? How did it all happen? And during that time, what are some of the things happening in your life? Let's start there. And uh, yeah, bro, let's, uh, let's yeah. start there. That's a big question. Yeah, there's a lot of parts. There's a lot of parts there. Yeah. Um, so right before my addiction um, was my tennis career. And so my tennis career, was, tennis was my first love. You know, like when I was really young, I had a lot of um, allergies to a lot of foods and a lot of uh, severe asthma. So I would spend a lot of time in the hospital throughout the year, like almost like, probably like three weeks a year in the hospital from either an asthma, mostly asthma attacks, but every time, every now and then I eat a peanut or something like that by accident. And so this created in me um, a couple of things. One, I felt completely different than all my peers. So being in a social situation, like a birthday party or, you know, in Vermont, we like, you know, barn par the parties in the barn, like hay rides, all this stuff. And so all that stuff to me was super scary because it meant that like every breath I took or everything I ate was a threat because of the atmosphere and the environment. And I felt completely unsafe. And again, like all my peers were running around without a care in the world. And I'm, you know, sitting there scared as shit with like, am I going to be able to breathe in 10 minutes? So I was always really withdrawn and it got to the point where it was really just super uncomfortable, uncomfortable for me to be in those situations. And so um, that happened. And also social anxiety, like I got severe 
social anxiety about that from that fear to the point where, you know, like I would have my mom call up and be like, Sam's not feeling well. He's not going to make the birthday party. And that was like a repetitive thing. So when I was like six or seven, um, I started playing tennis and, you know, it, it was just like one of those things It was in the summer, I picked up a racket and it was, it, it just fit my life because it was individual. You know, I didn't have to worry about anybody else on the court. And I, and I always got little breaks. Like you run around for 30 seconds and you get a break, you change sides, you get a break. So tennis was like, it was, it was perfect. So instead of now having to say, I feel sick, I can't make the party. You know, I, I got to a very high level of tennis pretty quickly where all around New England, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, I was playing tennis tournaments every weekend. So instead of having to say, I don't want to go to that party, you know, I had this bigger, bigger thing, this bigger prize of like, I'm going to play tennis tournaments. And I freaking loved it, partially because it gave me a reason not to go to these social, social events. And so um, that lasted all the way up through college. Uh, and so the tennis was always a priority for me in a sense that like nothing else, like, again, I put it ahead of social situations. I put it ahead of chasing girls as a teenager. I put it ahead of everything else, baseball, soccer, all the other sports that kids, the kids were playing that team environment was scary to me because it meant that like I had, like if I had an asthma attack in the middle of a soccer game, you know, I, I, I am letting my team down. I'm going to be, there's going to be a microscope on me. People are going to be looking at me. Like it's really, really scary. And so, um, going into college where the, the drinking kind of comes in is that, you know, like I, I drank in college and all that, but like, right. But the thing is, is like, I always put tennis first. So it was always the, if I had a match on a Saturday, for example, there's no way I'm drinking on a Friday night like all my friends are. So right leading up to my addiction, um, you'll hear a lot of like high-level athletes talk about how you know they got addicted to pain pills or they or they started smoking weed and they and they fell out of their sport or they, you know, alcohol, DUIs, whatever cost them their sport. For me, it was kind of the opposite where I was able to put that sport on the pedestal that it needed to be on to protect myself, really. And so when I graduated college, I was 22 or 23 and I stopped playing tennis. And pretty much right then the, the, that gap that was left by tennis, that, you know, that was my identity. And that, that hole, that void that was there was immediately filled with drugs and alcohol. And so I started like going out a lot, drinking a lot. Um, you know, I was like the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Funday guy. And for a long time that was okay because, you know, like my friends were doing it. We were all doing it. I was able to like, you know, relationships weren't suffering. I was able to hold down a job. I could get to work, going to work hungover. It was fine. I was in my early twenties. I could recover really fast, not so much later in life, but, um, you know, it didn't really have any of the consequences, but what was happening was that the, the, the slide down the cliff had begun. So for the next about seven years from 23 to 30, it was a pretty, like, it was a steady decline to the point where like, you know, every, all my friends and I were doing it. Then it was like, I was always doing it, but there's always people around. And then it got to the point where it was just me doing it. You know, like that was like completely, my friends were like, you're, you know, I can't be around you when you're, when you're fucked up. I can't, you know, you, you do these things. You, you, I, I, I definitely caused a few breakups and relationships and, you know, wet, like ruined some weddings and even family events and stuff like that. So right before the addiction kicked in, started creeping in was this tennis career that was really my savior in a lot of ways. And so the, the thing about the thing about tennis when it first when I first started playing was that it provided me with a a safety net really. 
Like it was, you know, when I was on the tennis court, like I was in that safety zone, like it was okay. Everything was okay. And then getting off the tennis court and like going into those social situations, it was just so uncomfortable for me because honestly, so when I was, when I was really young, of course, like I had this, these physical ailments and I had a program installed in me that, you know, the core beliefs that you hear a lot of people talk about zero to seven years old and these programs get installed that I needed to be saved. Like the, so for me going forward at, in life, and I didn't, I didn't recognize this until I got sober, but, um, I took, I, I just kept operating on that, that operating system forever. Like I need to be saved. And I never, I never, once I stopped needing to be saved physically, like, so when I was a kid, like if I eat a peanut, you know, I'm eight years old, I can't exactly drive myself to the hospital or drive myself with an EpiPen. Like I need someone to actually save me. Mm-hmm. Um, asthma the same way if i get an asthma attack at three in the morning on january 15th like there's no way i'm driving to the hospital as 11 year old right like i needed to be saved so i had this is so repetitive in my life that i it was just it was just the way my world was like to me this was my lens on the world is that if i am to survive if i am to be successful and happy i need to be saved not by myself but by by somebody else and so you know tennis was something that it allowed me to, it saved me. It saved me from like that fear. It saved me from the social anxiety. It saved me from falling into depression as a kid. And it saved me, it saved me in a sense that it allowed me to um, survive. It allowed me to keep the alcoholism and addiction at bay. You know, it was again, more important. So going forward, like as I got into the addiction, like I still hadn't addressed this story yet, but um, you know, I, it, once the tennis went away, I just started reaching for things, reaching for enjoyment, reaching for happiness, reaching for love, reaching for identity. And so without, without tennis there, like the one thing that stuck was I'm going to be a rock star. And that was my, like, I decided, like I was, I was, I actually physically, literally, I remember deciding, like, I want to be just a party animal for the rest of my life. Like I want to be in Joseph Van Dyke for New Year's Eve. I want to be in Yacht Week in Greece. I want to be like, these things were like, the main reason I was existing was to like fulfill this need for this party. And it was, and it it happened. Like, I mean, literally when tennis went away, this just fell into that gap. Dude, I can relate to that so much (laughs) because I was a hockey player and the same thing Uh, happened to me. It's, um, and this is a whole conversation as well as the life after the athlete, because the, the athlete, you know, we have this persona and this identity. And then when that goes away, a lot of athletes don't know who the fuck they are or where they're going. There's not enough preparation in the journey of an athlete to understand that the reality is you won't be playing play sport, pro sports. The right. reality is that you're going to meet a lot of people. A lot of opportunity is going to come from it, right? And you need to be okay when it's time to pivot. And a lot of us aren't, Mm-mm. you know, <clears throat> because things happen and for whatever reason, we have the, our mindset to play professional. And of course, that's the goal. But there's so many other things that can come. So it's, it's tough for athletes for, to, to make the pivot. So for me, I was like, I don't know who I was. I had no idea. Yeah. And partying, you know, I tried a bunch of stuff. And then I got into the bar and the bar industry. And I was like, uh, Woo! What is this? What is this? I'm getting paid. I can meet girls. I can get drunk. I can hang out. I can be, you know, do whatever the hell I want. I get rewarded for it in tips. And like, 
that is super addicting when you have some sort of void that you're trying to fill. Yeah. And that fills it, man, it's, uh, it can be quite the, uh, quite well, the downward spiral. Yeah, there's very few things that can match the kind of rush or the adrenaline or the, the validation or justification that comes from being an athlete. Yeah. You know, like the, the, to succeed in an athletic event, to like to win a hockey tournament or to win a tennis tournament, like that is like next level of, you know, Mm. endorphins and feel good chemicals and so you know there's very few things like when you when after the addiction i realize there's things that like are good as that but when you come right out of it you're like whoa just give me that again like where do i find that again Mm. and you know we don't and like you said like professional like education doesn't matter to a professional athlete really like especially growing up you're like i'm I'm just gonna be a hockey player and i know that hockey too is it's one of those things where the college college hockey is not it's it's a thing but it's more like you go out of high school and you get drafted in minor leagues and then mm. you know more tennis is the same way like tennis for me like college is kind of the kiss of death for a tennis player if you go to college you're like pretty much not going to make it on the pro tour mm. because you need to be there at 18 19 20 starting to like learn that speed of that game and stuff so i didn't go to college for college i went to college to play tennis like i was mm. it was a stepping stone for me you know I, so- I wasn't there for academics so i had nothing to fall back on so what ended your career? What was the, when did, when did you decide like, this is done? Okay. Um, yeah. So my freshman year in college, I was playing basketball, um, Greek, Greek, uh, Greek league basketball. And um, I came down for a rebound and one of the other guys in the team, his, our knees collided and I blew my ACL out. And so this is now I'm 19. And for the first time in 13 years, I'm not playing tennis every day. And I'm like, you know, first, my first is like grief. Like I'm, I'm a lot of tears, a lot of like, I'm injured. I'll never get back there. But at the same time, on the other side of that was like, I kind of got used to life without tennis. I was like, you know what? Like there's like, I started socializing and I started, you know, I started drinking a little more, but I started like, I kind of just like, I moved on from like tennis is the most important thing to like, wow, there's like, it's fun to hang out and play video games and smoke weed and, and drink on the weekends and all this stuff. And so it was kind of like the first taste. And I still at this point was like, I'm getting, I'm going to come back stronger, come back faster. Like I rehabbed my knee and I got back on the tennis team. And then my senior year, um, my tennis coach pulled me into his office and was like, he's like, I think you're done playing tennis. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you're burnout. He's like, you're, you've been playing every day for the majority of your life since you were six years old. Like I can see it. Like he's like, you don't show up to practice really. Like you kind of just don't care. And I can see that you're done playing tennis. He's like, so this was like the middle of my senior year on the tennis team. He's like, I think it's best that, you know, you just, like, I'm not going to take your scholarship away, but I think it's best that you, you know, stop playing tennis on the team. And I was, at, the, at that point, I, you know, I was kind of like confused in the sense of like, wait a second, like I thought I just had to show up and I, I could play tennis. But at the same time, after I thought about it, I was like, you know what, like there's relief here. Like there's a sense of relief. Like I, I'd kind of gotten to the point where I realized that to be a professional tennis player, like there is no off season. Like you have to, it's three sixty five, twenty four seven. And I, and I, saw, and I was around a lot of like high level players. Pete Sampras was at my high school, and some other really, really good players like would come through my high school in Florida. And like that level of that mentality was always like I just felt disconnected from it. And then. You know, as I started to get, as I was in, and this is part of the reason college is a kiss of death is because you kind of realize 
is a social scene and it's fun. It's fun to chase girls. It's fun to laugh with your boys and go eat all you can eat wings and drink beer and do all the things that are fun socially. And as you're like, you know, as I grew up and got into the early twenties, you know, it just became, it just became that I had to make a choice between, am I going to like really, really give tennis my hundred percent effort? Do I really want to do that? Or do I just kind of like ride off into the sunset and, and live my life? And that was the decision I made. It was like, you know, it, it, I could have probably, if I had really made an effort, done that, but I just did not, I knew that I did not have the desire to, to commit like that. Yeah. I mean, you're a human too, right? We're, we're young and yeah. I was, I was the same, you know, I never got to live the normal life than like the rest of them. So I always felt like, although I was playing this high level and, you know, got respected for it, I never felt, I always felt like I was missing out on a lot of fun. Uh-huh. And it's, it's funny when you're in that situation, you feel like it, but then when it ends, you're like, wait a minute, this isn't that great. And I was like, this sucks. I want to go, you know, but we, it's really, this is the challenging part about being an athlete growing up. You know, there's so many temptations. You know, we're young, man. We don't know shit about life. There's a lot of temptation. There's a lot of pressure. You, you know, you're dealing with a lot of different stuff going on. And I don't think we're equipped enough growing up to deal with it. And, you know, there's just such a small window of opportunity to become professional. And some mm-hmm. of the people, some of the, the kids get it, some don't. And that, that focus is so key. I mean... But living that life of traveling around and, you know, for us, it was sleeping on buses. It wasn't like having it, you know, it was just so, it was challenging. And were you aware in the moment that you were missing out on like the other stuff in life or was it more of a hindsight? A little bit. I mean, towards the end of my career, you know, I had a girlfriend who I, I I was, I went through a bit of a heartbreak. So I was always felt like I was like, I was always like uh, missing out and I was like, I was like, oh, I just want to be home. You know, and it's hard because, it, you know, we, it's the reality of it too. You know, our parents say don't stay away from girls growing up in hockey because they'll distract you. There's truth to that. There's truth to that. There's plenty of time for all that, but it's hard to tell your heart that when you're, you're growing up. And there is so much opportunity now looking back and I think, wow, if you just had your head screwed on properly, you could have got through it. But that's, that's the lesson. And I think that's what the lesson a lot of people, kids, maybe it's different now growing up, need to know. They need to see themselves in the future without that thing. And is that yeah. what they really want? Because if they can somehow see the reality of the life that they think is going to be there, th- that they're missing out on, that really isn't that great. And what can happen and that you got to go and pay bills and you got to do all the shit yourself that uh-huh. nobody taught you. Then you may think, okay, fuck, maybe I'm going to get through this uncomfortable time because yeah. what could the potential rewards from playing pro sports could bring me? Yeah, I think you're totally right on that. There's no addressing of like the future possibility either way, like either direction, whether you dive into your sport. Because like when you look at the attrition rate, like it's a ton of kids play junior tennis or junior hockey. Some a little bit less play like organized high school stuff and then even less play minor leagues or hockey. And then it's like the 0.0001% make it there and you have to look like if you there was a way if i was aware of the things that were coming down the road like the the two the two kind of polar possibilities of it i i think it would have been very beneficial to say the least 
Totally. But then it's like, well, then we wouldn't be here. And then, you know, everything has its reason for happening. And yeah, you can only just take what you've learned and apply it and, you know, try and give that wisdom and and help to others, you know, and that's why I find it important that I do want to work with athletes down the road and just like really to get in their heads and be like, yeah, like what you think is on the other side of this is not what you think. Just fucking stay in it. Like get through this because then you're going to reap so many rewards. You want girls? Well, you'll get lots of girls later. You'll get, you want money? You'll get lots of money later. Yeah. Right? Like. <laughs> the, the mindset, because like when you're, when you're a kid, like for you or I know for me, like I was, I was physically superior, not like in size, but in just like tennis talent to a lot of the kids I grew up around. So I never had to like really use my, my head at all. Like the mentality, the mental, the mindset wasn't there for me. You know, and so like, like you talk about like getting a kid that, and making their, their mind sound is, I mean, exponentially beneficial going forward. Even if they don't make it in the hockey world or tennis world, like it's mm. to have a sound mind, it will serve you in every aspect of your life. Because life is just opportunity. It's everything is going to bring you opportunity. You're the relationships you're going to build, the people you're going to meet. If you mm-hmm. treat people with respect, you treat yourself with respect, like things are going to come out of it. Like yeah. we're, you're going to bring something else into it. And maybe the thing that you thought you wanted isn't even what you really wanted, but it was a good, there was a good roadmap for what you thought and it brought you to something else. And that's kind of, that's kind of like the realization that I've had is that, you know, although it would have been great to play sports, professional sports, there's a lot that I would have missed along the way that, that I feel like is essential. So including yeah. my battle with addictions and alcohol. So, you know, that <laughs> has been a huge part of my story and it's going to be a huge part of my transformational work that I do. So let's, I really want to like, okay, so you finished tennis. Yeah. Okay. You started to get a taste for booze, college life. I didn't go to college, but I fucking heard it was insane with partying. I kind of wish I got to experience that, but what was the, where, where was your rock bottom? Like where was the unraveling where like partying became oh, fuck, I've lost control here. And people are like, look, dude, like there, there's an issue here. And what was the, how did the alcohol turn into substance? Walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, so the, the rock bottoms, I mean, I had, it's almost like I didn't have one event that was a rock bottom. I had throughout my addiction. So for the first, like I said, those first like seven years from age 23 to 30, like, things were okay. Like I was definitely partying really freaking hard and probably partying more so than all my friends. And people started to like ask questions. I I got married in there. I got married at 27, divorced at 29. And like, you know, my wife was always like, you are freaking crazy. Like, and my friends would start to ask questions, but the the first real like consequence from a, from drinking was um, when I was 33 and I got a DUI at 10 in the morning. And I had been up all night doing drugs and drinking and I, I left my car at a bar the night before. And so I went to get my car not having slept and I T-boned another car at a red light and got a DUI. And so this is like, this is now, you know, I'm 33 years old. I'm single. I mean, I had a girlfriend at the time, but I was divorced for three years. I had a, I was doing commercial real estate in Miami. And this one, this one basically cost me that career, cost me that job. And it cost me that girlfriend and it cost me whoever, however much money from the lawyer fees and all that stuff. So that was my first real like 
I say should have, but it was my first like time when people were like, you need to take a step back, bro. Like you need to really look at what's going on here. Like you are a wreck. Like, you know, my friends are like, listen, we like to party too, but you are next level. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's fine. Like I'll just like, I, and then I'll just like take a little time out 30 days off. I'll be good. And so I went to rehab partially just to like prove to the courts and all that. But I never, I never, I hadn't yet connected the dots that like drinking and drugs and me and my, the consequences and behaviors, I didn't see the connection and it took years for me to see the connection. So, but over the next five years from 33 to 38, I was in rehab six times. The sixth being the last one Um, jail. I was probably arrested probably 20 times in, in jail for, the last one was seven nights in jail in North Carolina for a DUI. Um, hospital stays. I fell off a balcony one time, 35 feet off the second story of a bar, landed on pavement below, oh. gave myself, yeah, gave myself cancer in my mouth twice from drinking. And then, I mean, that's like some physical stuff there, but then there's like the broken relationships and the, the good girls that I hurt and, the, and my parents that I hurt and my sisters that I hurt and my friends that stopped calling me and all these things like this litany of evidence. And it wasn't until um, 2010, probably, is the first time I was living in North Carolina. And this is right after I fell off the balcony and right after I had had uh, the cancer in my mouth. And I was just, you know, it was the summer of 2010. And I'm like, I, I, for the first time, I remember thinking, like, I should probably, not, probably look at stopping drinking. Like, I, can, I started to see the, the correlation between, like, my life sucking and drinking. And so I, I went to another rehab there. And that this, this time was the first time I intentionally went to stay sober. The other times I went to rehab three times previously and it was always, you know, I'm going to go to this rehab and I'm going to come out and be this like magically changed person. And the girlfriend's going to come back and the commercial real estate career is going to take off and nothing of that happened. You know, like I, I would like, the only thing that would happen after those trips to rehab was I would get drunk again because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't understand I didn't, it's not that I didn't understand. I didn't want to see or believe that the drinking was a problem because the underlying issues of the drinking were the social anxiety and the depression. You know, like I, I loved, at this point I had loved, I had learned to love being social. I loved going to football games, to concerts, to festivals, to parties, like keg, whatever, whatever it was, I loved this lifestyle. And I said, there's, well, there's no way I can live this way and not drink. So I have to figure out how to drink. And so it never occurred to me that like, I need to love myself enough not to drink. It was always like, I'll drink to get this back, to get the relationship back. Like there was never a really internal desire or motivation for me to stop drinking until 2010 when it started to be like, cause I really didn't have anything in my life at this point. You know, I was living by myself. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a girlfriend. And I was like, well, the only thing that, the only thing that, I mean, I was hurting other people, but the only real pain that I was feeling was like, I'm just like, I'm the common denominator here. Like this is all stemming from my behavior. You know, like, I mean, going to the strip club and spending like 10 grand a night and like doing all these things that were just like super detrimental to any kind of progress in life. And so 2010, I go to this rehab and I stay for four months and I move back to Florida and I stay sober for about eight months. And then for about a year, it was 60 days of sobriety. And then I would, something would happen and I would drink again. And then um, I had a year of sobriety, a year long, 11 and a half months actually. And it was uh, September of 2012. And I had a buddy from high school in town and he's like, Hey, you want a beer? And I just, I was like, yes, you know, no questions asked, like no thought about it. 
And then in those two months, so from uh, September to October of that year, seven nights in jail. Um, I had a dog in the car when I got the DUI. I lost my dog. Um, I was moving out of my, I I lost my job. So no ability to pay rent moving out of my house. Uh, my girlfriend that I had broken up with had moved back to California. Um, you know, my dad was like, I, I looked at my dad, he was like 68 or so at the time. And I looked, I, I went to his house one time and he was just like so much stress and anxiety and, and pain that he was just, that his color was gray. And so I was sitting there on October, tw- uh, November 21st, 2012. And all that stuff that I just talked about, it was like sitting right next to me. Like literally on the, on the chair next to me, it was like, just sitting there looking at me like you look at what you look at the, all this stuff that you've caused, look at all the pain you've caused. And you know, it wasn't, it was like the parents, the girlfriends, the, the house, the physical ailments. I mean, I, my shoulder still messed up from falling off the balcony. I have a scar on my tongue. Like my parents were like, just like, I would hear stories about my mom crying all night long when I wouldn't call. And just all this evidence that I had previously chose to not see was sitting right next to me. And so to say that was like a rock bottom, I mean, it was definitely, it was the end, you know, they're like, and I say like falling off a balcony, that's, that's pretty low and getting cancer. That's like a rock bottom. So, you know, like it, the, the rock bottom for me in the end was that day in November when I just said like, it all came rushing to me of like, you cannot go on like this. There's just no way. Mm. And so from that, I, I called 911. It was four in the morning and I called 911 and just said, you guys need, I need to come get me. Like there's some really bad thoughts in my head and I need to, something's got to change here. And so I went, I, I spent the next nine months in treatments and sober livings. And uh, oh. I, I, like I made a decision that morning, like I don't, and I, to this day, like I look back and there was like, I mean, there was spirit involved and like, I don't know what it was, but it's never like that. I made a decision. Like and I said, I had just previously read the story about uh, Hernan Cortez about burning the boats. And I was just like, it resonated with me. And I just said to myself at that moment, I'm like, I'm, I, I got to burn these boats. Like I, mm-hmm. I cannot go back no matter what. What was the underlying trauma, do you think, or the thing you were trying to cut, trying to heal with booze? Like, have you, obviously you've unpacked that, but like yeah. at the time, you know, if you were, to, you, you tell somebody drinking, oh, you got trauma, be like, fuck off. What the fuck are you talking about? Right. <laughs> yeah. It's the last like, thing so yeah, well, you don't even like, it's like, you know, it's the last thing that we, you know, we even, it's not even on our radar, but now that you, in hindsight, like what was the, what was the trauma or the reason, the void that you were trying to get rid of through booze? And alcohol? I felt it, it was, it goes back to childhood. Like I felt like I was still that kid that got picked on for having asthma and food allergies and not being able to breathe right. And, you know, mm. um, I was just it, it, really no self love, honestly, self hate, like never feeling like enough, never feeling ever, ever okay in my own skin. Like over those five years when I, cause so 33 is when I kind of like really like made attempts at sobriety and like every time that I would get sober, whether I had a girlfriend at the time or friends at the time or even family, they, every single person would say to me, God, you know, I, I really like this sober version of Sam. And the one thought was like, well, that's cool, but I don't. Like I hated being sober. I felt so uncomfortable in my own skin, so uncomfortable with who I am. And I, I remember there was one point I, I walked, I was walking into a bar in North Carolina. I remember the bar. I remember the day. It was a Saturday. It was called the tavern, the, the, um, what was it called? It was a pub, the pub. 
it was it was called the pub and so i walked in and i remember looking around and like these people were like regular hangout friends like not that we like talked like this about anything but like we would hang out every weekend and i walked in and just looked around and i was like i'm not this cool like this is i'm a fraud like there's i don't know why these people like me i don't know I, i'm not this is not me like i'm i'm still that awkward shy not enough little kid and i looked and i looked and i looked around and i just was like okay and I just sat down in the bar and started doing shots. Like those, I know the way to get rid of that feeling is I do shots. And then I become the life of the party and I make jokes and dance around and talk to girls and like everything, everything fades away. So that, that's like social anxiety is there. But really what it was is that the reason I had social anxiety is because I never felt equal to anybody. I felt less than everybody around me. Oh man, I just had a powerful like, your resonation with that. Like yeah i i know the feeling um you don't feel that you're enough to be in that situation sober and and confident enough and i felt the same way i remember like especially after hockey ended and i went down that road i felt like a nobody and I felt I started to lose confidence. There's other things. The reason that I, I, I got to that point, like there's a lot of shit, but once booze came in, it was almost like you, you develop, it's like a way to create a new personality. It's like two different people. It's like, oh, okay, I can just be like this. And then as soon as I drink, I become this like person that like everybody likes and I don't care about what people think. And I like that. And you almost get the rewards from that because you're getting validated. And, and, and that, that part itself is like the key point now when you're talking to me that I can remember. And I, you know, what I've identified now is crazy because you get so used to that person that isn't even real, that's just constructed from alcohol, the party person, the social person, it's not even real. And then the more you become uh, an alcoholic, the more that becomes you so that when you are sober, you don't know how to be. And there was a point there where I've seen it in the bar industry, man. It's toxic. People don't know how to be sober. Yeah. It's really dangerous. And I've witnessed, I've witnessed, you know, I was working in uh, down to Sydney, in Sydney, Australia, right in the, the central business district, lawyers, high professional people, people are drinking during the day, people mm -hmm. I work with it becomes this normalcy of like toxic behavior, but it is nobody can, nobody can function without that, that lubrication. And I started to notice in myself that I was literally, I didn't know who I was. And like you're saying, when you get lost in the booze and it becomes a habit, you go across the street, you can just drink, you can be like, fuck it. All right, I'm back. And, and that becomes it's so you can do that everywhere all the restaurants all the bars on the airplanes and the airports it's like it's there for you to just hide and when you take that away and you're forced to be you and you have to relearn how to be a human again without it and this yeah. is exactly what i had to do in 2017 for one year is that i went sober and i was like holy shit i need to relive how to be and it's hard because a yeah. lot of people are doing the same dance trying to everyone's got social anxiety i feel like and 
It's not until you have conversations like this when you realize how real this shit is. People have different levels of it. And nothing feels better though than now being able to, you know, I've gone back and forth on sobriety, but like, you know, I've been two months sober again and nothing feels better than when you, you are able to go into an environment like we did in Sedona, socialize from like a real true heart centered place and not have it be at all with alcohol. You know, you have all these conversations on the piss, on the booze. And then the next day it's like, it didn't even happen. It's like, fuck. That's yeah. Deep. Right. So like, how was that? So, okay. So I just went on like a rant there, but no, I it's all good, man. such a resonation with that because like anybody, you guys listening that have, have struggled with alcohol or you haven't, that is the way it goes. <laughs> and, and I want you to know you're not alone. And if you're struggling, that's why we're here. That's why we're having this conversation. You're not alone. Right. And, um, you may have to relearn how you do things, but it's very important that you do know how to do that. So, okay. You decided to go sober. You're in rehab. Now, was that now, sorry, did you say that you relapsed after rehab? You did a few times, right? So age 33 to 38. Yeah. Every time I would leave rehab. So one of the, one of the big hangups for me was dating. You know, like you talk about like lubrication and like not feeling okay. Like you're sitting in front of a girl who you want to impress, but you're, you have no clue who you are yeah. without alcohol. So like I would be, I'd be sober for 45 days and I'd be like, all right, I'm, I'm going to go on a date and sit down at the date. And the girl's like, I'll have, you know, Jack and Coke. Like, what are you having? Uh, rum and Coke. Like, you, you know, it's like not even a thought. Like it's just cause it's so much insecurity that you just like, it's a default. You know, like, and like you, like you were talking about, like you, you know, you put so much time and effort really into like becoming this person that, you know, this like, it's like a Jekyll and Hyde thing. Like you put so much energy into becoming that person. You forget like who you were before the drinking and like, and then it's like, well, I, I need to drink to even feel like myself and it's not yourself, but it's, it's comfortable. That's the only thing that's comfortable. Yeah. That's crazy, man. <clears throat> yeah. And so the, so every, so I went to rehab twice in 2007, once in 2010. Um, and then the next time, the next time was the last time. So three times I went to rehab and each time I would come out and relapse because I just never got to the point where like I took the time to figure out who I was without alcohol or, or, you know, who I was and acceptance of who I was without alcohol. You know, like, and, and it comes from like, for me, it was a lot of like, you know, I feel again, like this little kid who has like having an asthma attack on the basketball court, like everyone's looking and it's super awkward and it's uncomfortable. I feel like if I'm sober at a bar, everyone's looking and it's super awkward and it's uncomfortable. Like, why aren't you drinking? Honestly, it's because that's what I thought. Like if I met someone that wasn't drinking, I'd be like, well, what's wrong with you? Like, why are you here if you're, if you're not drinking? Like, what's the point? Yeah. And I had, so I had this judgment. So I was now for therefore judging myself now for not drinking. And so I just never, I never got to the point until the, until I was actually done with drinking until I realized that all that, no matter what, I I was still going to be uncomfortable going forward. Like I was still going to have to learn again, like you said, learn how to live again, sober, like learn how to do all the things I love to do, but sober, you know, and until I committed to learning that and like getting to the root of the thing of all the things, like it was just, I was just waiting for fire. Like they play, it's like you go out and like, oh, you know, like I can go out one night and be fine. Maybe, maybe even for a couple weekends. But it, it's like, you know, they say a lot of times you'll hear in recovery, they say, um, if you go to the barbershop enough times, you're going to get a haircut. 
And that's the way it is for an alcoholic going to a bar. Like you go to a bar enough times and you're not, you don't have the tools and the knowledge to not drink. You're going to drink. And that's how it was for me. I just didn't have anything, any defense against it. Mm. So what, what changed then? So how, how did you recover and what was the difference between, because you, this is where I really want to unpack and it's, it's using psychedelics mm-hmm. and really healing. See, there's a lot of misconception and I really want to debunk this and I really want people yeah. today to walk away with the power of how powerful addiction is mm-hmm. and how you can use other ways like psychedelics to be able to heal what really needs to be healed. So yeah. if you could get into that, like what was the difference? Mm-hmm. How did you apply that? And kind of like, yeah, walk us through that a little bit. Oh, this is juicy. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, so I got sober in 2012 and I knew on my, I had on my radar social anxiety. I had on my radar that like I was an uncomfortable, awkward dude when I'm not drinking. And so spending nine months in treatment and like really the first thing was the commitment that I can't go back. That was the first number one thing was like I knew beyond a, beyond a shadow of a doubt, there was absolutely no going back for me ever. So the first thing I did was like, I, I basically I did, I made a list of the things I love to do in life. And a lot of them honestly were going to bars and watching Michigan play football on Saturdays, going to concerts and watching country music. You know, like I loved a lot of these things that are regularly stereotypically involve a lot of drinking. Yeah. So I said to myself that I had to do two things. One is I had to come to, I had to figure out what about me. And so the first thing was like getting to the bottom of these stories. And the second thing was, is that when you go out and you take a step back and you don't get all squirreled out in your head and caught up in the thoughts, you realize that no one really gives a shit that you're not drinking. Like they don't like, as long as they have a drink in their hand and you're talking to them, like they don't even ask. Like I made up in my head that like, everyone's going to be like, Oh, that guy over there, he's not drinking. Like, look at that weirdo. And it's not true at all. Like you, like they don't care. Nobody cares. And so that was a huge thing for me right there. I was just realizing that, like, that's the story I was making up in my head. And so getting to into the psychedelics the this is amazing because i got to a certain point in my sobriety i think it was actually 2017 so five years sober and i thought i was in the clear you know i i'd conquered the social anxiety from doing some work on it and i had conquered the the other people caring and like going on dates and like dates another thing for the guys listening like chicks actually dig sober dudes because Really, what do chicks want? They, they, girls, chicks, that's the, not the right word. But girls, yeah, I know. Right? I know. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what women want is safe, seen, and heard. What are the yeah. three things that you can do when you're sober that you can't do when you're drunk? Is like make them feel safe, see them, and hear them. Mm. You know, so it, it just, it, it just, it, it's just better for me. Um, totally, me too. And, and so, uh, so getting past that, getting to 2017, I was living in San Francisco and I got depressed, like really depressed. Like I, I had all, I had a great job, personal training. I had a, a sweet truck. I had a nice apartment in San Francisco. I had a great girlfriend, but I was like miserable. And I'm like, what's going on here? Like I've been sober for five years. Like this should be not an issue anymore. And so I had to, the first thing I had to do was like, I had to look at, uh, and a buddy of mine asked me, because uh, it wasn't the first time I had been in this situation. He's like. I, and I said, like, why does this keep happening to me? And he's like, well, that's the wrong question. He's like, it's not why does it keep happening to you. It's what is it about you 
that you keep allowing it to happen. Mm. You keep, you keep inviting it in basically. And so this is when I got to the stories, my stories, and the, the root story of mine was that I need to be saved. So it, that's like relationships, that's family, that's careers, that was drugs and alcohol. Like all of it was me looking for safety. And at this point in San Francisco, I was, my story and my life were not matching up. So this story that I really didn't even know existed at the time that I need to be saved because um, the this, this, this story, the way the stories work is that like they want to be right. Like your subconscious wants to be right. So you, you, you subconsciously like create your life around these stories so that you can be right. Painful or not, like it's comfortable to be right. And so I was, I had a great job. I had a bunch of money. I had a great girlfriend. Like I, I was saving myself. Like for the first time in my life, I was saving myself. But subconsciously, I was like, this is really uncomfortable. Like I need to be, I'm not being saved right now. Like I don't like this. Like I need to do something. I need, I need, what am I going to do? Like I need to be saved. Somebody save me. And I had no reason to be saved. So I basically got depressed and created a reason to be saved. So my career fell apart. The girlfriend left. And I said, and I, so I started this two year journey of like figuring out why I run from things, why, why this story keeps coming up. Why do I always fall back into being saved? And I got to the point where you know, like doing all this work and getting to the bottom of these stories. And I got to the point where the best analogy or the best um, example I can use is like, imagine you're walking along a path and you're looking for a clearing where you're going to set up your little, your picnic and your, your music and ecstatic dance, whatever you're going to do there. And you, you meet a glass wall, like an impenetrable infinity glass wall. Can't get around it. Can't get over it. Can't get through it. So you can see this clearing where like this amazing experience exists but you are stuck behind this glass wall. That's how I felt with my, all the work I was doing all the, so I was now 2019. I was now seven years sober and I was up against this glass wall with like therapy and all these other kinds of like reading books and all this stuff. And I got to this point where I was like, nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. Like it's like, I just kept bumping into this glass wall. I could see all this amazing things. Like I could see, money and and success and happiness and purpose and all this stuff that I wanted out of life. And so I started, I started looking at psychedelics and it was, I started doing this, started off with um, microdosing mushrooms. Now I should probably back up here for a second. So in my addiction um, through college and after college, I did a ton of psychedelics recreationally with the intention of like, let's get weird. Let's get fucked up. Like, let's just have a fucking great time you know, like basically remove myself again. This is all about now. Like I'm trying to be someone else, figure out something out, like figure out how I can show up in this social situation as not me. So I had to, I had to have, I had a lot of conversations with myself, um, with therapists, with other friends in recovery about like, am I going to, is this like, is this a relapse coming on? Like, am I, am I going to do some mushrooms here? And is this going to be a relapse? Am I going to have to like go back to rehab? Like all these things were coming up for me because I, I had this like muscle memory. This bi- my biology was telling me that like you do drugs, you suck. You're a relapse. You relapse. You're just an addict. That's all you are. And so um, after a while, after about doing a lot of research on these conversations, I decided that, you know what, like one thing I have learned in sobriety is that intention is probably one of the most important things you can have when any, when you're doing anything. Mm. So like, when I started microdosing the mushrooms, you know, my intention wasn't to get weird. My intention was literally like 
let's figure like all the like new neural pathways, rewiring the brain, opening your eyes, like getting to getting to new levels of consciousness that I know I needed to get to. Like it was when they say people are called to it, like literally, I was like, I know for a fact this is my this is the way that I'm going to progress my life, my spiritual growth, my personal growth, all of it is that I I need to visit this other kind of like plane of, of, of treatment. Like I need to, I need to get to this point where I can't get to with traditional therapy. I can't get to with tapping or NLP or all this stuff. I've tried it all. And I just, I was, I was bottoming or I was ta- getting to the ceiling with it. And so I started microdosing mushrooms and to say that like, it's crazy because like to say that my recovery got better, it got exponentially better. Like my, my, all the things that all that stuff on the other side of the glass that I was looking at, they all came kind of rushing in like the path, the glass melted away and the path to all these things became so clear, you know, that I was able, cause, cause really what that the mushrooms do is it, it, it shuts off that fight or flight. So like when you get to a certain point, like getting to a certain point of success or achievement or personal growth, you know, it, it can be scary again, like it goes back to the stories, like you're stepping out of a, a long running pattern, long running program. And so your, your fight or flight kicks in and your, and your defense mechanisms kick in. And I, uh, who calls it, they call it, um, I forget the name, but it's, um, they, they talk about it as like a, um, like a, like a, it's a, uh, I wish I could think of the name of it, but it's, the idea is, is that you see this growth and you see this potential and then something kicks in and basically like yanks you back because you're like, wait a second, like that's way too good. Or like, that's really scary because it's like out of my comfort zone, but it looks amazing. And no, nah, but come back here. We're good over here. And so. It's like a um, self-sabotage kind of thing. Total self-sabotage. Yeah. And you just, cause you, cause again, like you want to be, people want to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. And so doing the, getting into the psychedelics and then um, like the next step was in, in Sedona when, uh, so I've been doing the microdosing and I did a psilocybin journey and, and, uh, in Sedona. And then I ended that with the Wachuma at the end of Sedona. The Wachuma was extremely, I, the, the Wachuma brought me right back into my attic. Like it, it didn't bring me back into it. So that's not the right term, but it brought me face to face with the attic. Cause it, it, it made it just like, that's what it does. Like it made me look, it, it really forced me to look. And that's what these, the psychedelics allow me to do. They allow you to like shut that fight or flight off, shut that defense mechanism off and just look just see like what's going on. Like why, why don't you want that? Like what, or what do you need to do to get there? And it just, it allows your brain to work in a way and, to, and your, and your vision to be able to show up in a way that without, without the psychedelics, you just can't see the path. You can't see the, and the path really, the path is funny because the path is there all the time, but like there's blocks, there's rocks in a way. And like with the psychedelics, you can see like that rock right there that can go over here, you know, like that rock can go over here. And to remove those blocks was just so massive. Like in, in sobriety, like in sobriety, like to say it's not a conversation anymore for me, it's, it's not. But, but again, like if I say that, if I say like, I'm not sober, like that's when things get haywire. Like I have to acknowledge that's a part of what I need to do, but it just, it allows for so much clarity. And then with Wachuma, for example, when you can, like, it, it basically gives you the place to look at what's really there. Because, like, I, 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 I'm, so I'm eight years sober now. And so I haven't, like, revisited that sober, that, that addict in, in 
eight years really. Like I hadn't like, I, you know, I knew it was there and I did work on it and I did make, like I made my amends and I did the, the character defects and all the things that you need to do to get sober. But I had never actually sat there and looked at like, you know, I was still, I was still like that addict was still living inside of me. And when I, when I was on in the Machuma journey, like he was right there in front of my face. And like, he's like, really? what's up, bro? What's up? He's like, you thought I was gone. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of did. He's like, uh, it's like, and, but at the end of it, it was like, I was given the opportunity to say like, okay, I see you. You're there. That's cool but you're not loud anymore. Mm. You know, and I was able to say like, I'm not that guy anymore. Like, you know, it's, it, it's, there's, I had to look at the guilt and the shame, the guilt and the shame from my addiction were my cords to that addict. And I had to say like, I'm not, I, I've been eight years sober. I've done all these things. Like I had to just basically look at my addict and say, thanks for coming, but, but you know, you got to go home. Mm. Like it's not, you're not welcome here anymore. And it was awful. It was miserable, but at the same time, like it, that place and that container allowed me to put it to bed. Wow. So, okay. Let's, let's unpack for a second, the mushroom, mm-hmm. the mushroom. So psilocybin. So was it just from microdosing that you got the, or did you do a lot of big journeys? Because, um, I want people to understand, I've talked about this is like, psilocybin and plant medicine and psychedelics what i've noticed so far is that it is just showing you what you already have within you you know it's allowing you to look at the files that you may have not looked at and it literally forces you force may not be the right word i don't like to say force but you know it really guides you in a way that may feel uncomfortable to look at shit that we don't want to look at. And sometimes, well, most times when we need to get through something, we need to look at it, feel it. Uh-huh. And, and it can bring emotion to it. But that is the power that when you give it love, when you accept that thing and you don't uh-huh. resist it, that is what, when healing starts, right? It's, uh-huh. it, it's accepting that, that file that you've had in your life as just part of it and not beating yourself up. And I think psilocybin, uh, like when you do, the more you do, the more those become in your face and you're right. Uh, intention is everything set and setting is everything. But if you are ready to let go and psychedelics is the ultimate letting go and we'll get into, you know, some other powerful ones, but you know, that for me is something that, yeah, people say, well, you don't need psychedelics. That's right. Maybe they're not for everybody if you're being called to them. But I really, <laughs> it's hard for me to, to, to now after seeing what happens, that there isn't a place for that in somebody, some way, shape or form, whether that be <clears throat> microdosing, whether that be journeys, you got to be mindful and careful of it, obviously how you do it, but your set and setting is everything. And I really think that if you want to get to that root of the things that you may be feeling holding you back, then it's probably for you because all the mantras and all the things you can do, but sometimes there's these things that just need to be pulled out. You, you right. nailed it. Every bit of it. I agree with every bit. The file thing is so true because that's exactly what it does. Like that drawer in your file cabinet that you know hasn't been opened in years, like the psychedelics, the mushrooms will open that drawer and be like, well, what do we got in here? Yeah. 
And it's like accepting it as like, haha, okay, laughing at it because it's like, fuck it. It's not like, you know, I didn't kill anybody. I hope, yeah. well, if I did, I forgive myself. I forgive it. Like, we're here now, right? Yeah. For whoever, whatever you've done in your life, you're here now. You know, just playfully accept it that it's kind of funny because that's what you have to look at. And that's, that's it. And then move on. Yeah. You know, and what's interesting about, what you said about Wachuma is that I had, I didn't, so for all of you guys listening, Wachuma is from the San Pedro cactus in the States. And it's, it's like a grandfather medicine. It's like a very warm, it's like a big hug. Reno says it's like nature giving you a big hug or something. (laughs) And it's funny because like, I didn't have anything like that with what you're saying. Mine was just like this, like openness that was like, my heart was just so open. And it's crazy because Sedona for me wasn't, I didn't have any of the negative feelings surface, like except for the relationship part, that was a little, but like breath work was positive. I was laughing. I was like, I got out of that. So, and like, I'm so used to feeling really like shitty after and kind of not shitty, but like, wow, that was really challenging. And Wachuma and then later five MEO, everything was like, wow, like I'm actually, I actually felt like I'm healing. Like I actually feel like things are, because we don't always have to, it doesn't always have to be hard, right? Like <laughs> That's, sometimes yeah. it's like, it's like, oh shit, this isn't as hard as it was before or this, maybe I'm on the right path. Maybe I'm healing, right? And it's interesting to hear that you were faced with that because there was yeah. obviously something that you still needed to face. There was, and it was, you know, like when in the, we kind of did like two in Sedona, it was like the, at the river, when we were at the river doing the watch two and then the five MEO that was all like that for me. And then we went back to the, the other setting and that's when the other shit started coming up for me. Mm. And, you know, and to be honest with you, like what it was is that at the river, everything felt very ceremonial, very like intentional. And then we went back to the house and it reminded me of being at a, a late night party. And so I was like thinking to my, I got in my head and like the grand, the, the, and I talked to Reno about this and he's like, dude, he's like, it's just showing you what you need to see. He's like, does, he's like, are you, are you the guy in the corner doing 18 lines of cocaine when everyone else is going to sleep anymore? I'm like, no. It's like, there you go. Yeah. And, but like, for me, it was like, I was like going back to the house and having that different, that change of setting was exactly what I needed to see because it brought me, it brought up for me what was in that file cabinet yeah. was that like, I'm afraid to look at this. Like I'm afraid to even think about it. And this is part of the conversation that I had before starting psychedelics was like, am I going to be, going down this road where I'm starting to use psychedelics recreationally again. And the answer is no. no. Like the answer is like, that's just not like even coming back from Sedona, like I have zero desire to like just eat mushrooms on a weekend for the hell of it. Like, no, like yeah. I need, like if it's intentional and I'm, it's a ceremonial, like going to Peru and doing ayahuasca, whatever it is, like all about it. But like it, it, that night showed me that like, that is not who I am anymore. And I was still holding on to that. Mm. It's easy to do psychedelics recreationally with booze. I've done it. It's yeah. easy because as soon as you feel uncomfortable, you just drink it away. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, it's not even, that's not, but if you use it, it's hard. It's work, man. I don't like, I did the last time was like three and a half grams for me in the dark. And I've told this story many times. I did that right before we had lockdown and I had a profound experience and I have not been called to do it again. I was like, that was fucking challenging six hours. I loved it. I laughed. I cried. I was starving. I was so hungry by the end of it. 
I was like, you know what? I'm good for now. Like I'm good. Yeah. And I really recommend it all you guys listening that if you like, it doesn't, you have to be called to this stuff. If it doesn't feel right, don't do it. But if yeah. you're getting, if you're constantly having this stuff pop up and you want to learn about it, you're curious, that's usually the knock, right? That's usually the, but nobody's saying you have to go and do this, but you know, now that we're seeing psilocybin come up and be legalized in the States all over the place and decriminalized, mm-hmm. it's great because it, it, there's yeah. a place for it. There's a place for this stuff. And I think we're just beginning to figure out the, the, the magnitude of that. And yeah. for, you know, and you're right. Some people can slip into thinking, oh yeah, well, this is just going to be recreation. No fucking way. Like, no, good luck, like I'm telling yeah. you. And, you know, doing Bufo, 5-MEO, that was a fucking, did I, I'll tell you what I walked away from. I have the ultimate reverence and respect for that medicine that I will never fuck around unless it's in the right setting ever. Like I'm telling you, man, I had the most beautiful experience, but dude, it was like, and somebody said this, I think Mike Tyson even said it, or, uh, I was listening to, um, I was listening to uh, Paul check on Aubrey. It's like, it's like, Three, two, one, God. Oh shit. Like it's like <laughs> three, two, one, blast off God. And you're like, yeah. oh, what? Hold on, what? And you're like, yeah. holy fuck, holy fuck. And then you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, exactly. oh, like you, you, three, two, one, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's fucked. And it's like, and, and like that itself, if you don't have respect and if you don't surrender before, if you don't give up the thought of your ego, if you aren't ready to surrender essentially to dying, like yeah. if you don't, I know that may sound weird to people that haven't done it, but this is just like, once you dive into this stuff, you know, you start to learn that the ultimate surrender is learning that you got to let go of your ego. Right. And once you do that, it becomes beautiful. But if you don't, if this is, this is something I wouldn't say to beginners either. Like if you aren't ready to let go, it's mm-hmm. going to be challenging, like fighting. And, but that is the ultimate thing. It's like the feeling of it for me, I came back not as scared of things in life, fear in general, because for me, what was scary was not having control of shit. I was like, Whoa, I have no control. Especially when my ego started to come back intact. I was like kind of in kind of out. That's when things got a little bit kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Like when you blast off and you're like, you're, you just have to accept what is like, that's a scary feeling. And when you come back to reality and you're all pieced back together, your ego, your back, you're like reborn. You're like, wait a minute, what the fuck am I scared of? Like I have control of shit. Like for me, I was like, that's what the the download that came. I'm like, what a beautiful thing being able to control what you can do. Uh, It's such a perspective (laughs) shift, man. (laughs) (laughs) You're like crazy, man. You're like, Oh, that's a lie. That's a lie. That's a lie. Like, yeah. I don't know why I believe that, but yeah, I mean, like, like when you talked about like that, to be ready for it is that's goes, this goes back to intention. Like you just can't say like, wake up one morning and be like, Oh, I think I'm going to do mushrooms today in ceremony and go do mushrooms. Like, no, like you really need to listen to the call and like be like ready for like, I have one thing that I talk about a lot with my clients is like, if you're not ready for all of it, you're not ready for any of it. And with, with the psychedelics, like you, you can't go in saying like, I want to have this experience because that's not going to happen. You're going to get the experience that the medicine needs to give you. You're going to get shown what you need to see and you don't have any say over that. 
Like you, it's going to pull up things like in that file cabinet, that subconscious that you might not be ready for, but that's part of being ready for it. Yeah. And you know what, dude, is another thing. It's like, that's why even prepping for it. Like I, even when I do, if I, when I do um, psilocybin again, there's always this anxiety that pops up or even when I microdose sometimes it's weird, but like, if I do the meditations, if I do the, like a hard activity, I sweat, I do yoga, you, I'm going into it where my energy is ready. Like in Sedona, we did all these, all this work and I wasn't going to do Bufo when we went there, you know, like that wasn't the conversation. It was like, I was like, if it flows, it flows. But all the work that we did being in nature, breath work, relationships, crying, all the conversations, I was like, dude, I'm ready for this. Mm. And like, I, for myself, like I have to prep myself with that intention. It's like when I go do ayahuasca in January and and on the 17th, like all January, I'm like, I'm not fucking around. Like I'm going to really prepare all of it. Yeah. Like I want to, because I know how I get, I know how, if I don't prepare myself, then I'll have, I'll be like an anxious fuck. And like, that's what I'm trying to like reprogram that too. Mm -hmm. like surrender but like i know when i don't prep for things then the thing itself never goes as well even for a podcast like journaling meditation things like that time gives me a better experience in an interview Mm -hmm. giving me doing psychedelics knowing what allows me to feel good and relaxed will give me a better experience because if you go in and you want to look at shit that you don't want to look at and you don't feel good and you're not set up, you're going to probably, it's a lot of, it's just going to be weird, unnecessary emotions that, that you just haven't really dealt with, but you should have dealt with yeah, because you, you want to go in as a clear channel. Right. You won't be able to fully immerse yourself in the medicine at yeah. all. You'll have blocks up. And like, that's one of the things about psychedelics is like you, if you have those blocks up, it, it's going to be a fight. Like you're going to be fighting with the medicine. You're going to be in and out of the experience. You're going to be fighting with your own head. Your thoughts are going to be all over the place. So you need to get right before you go. And then that, that, like you said, that means like dieta. It means exercise. It means meditation. It means like the, it's, it's having reverence for the experience, the ceremony, the medicine, all of it. Yeah. It's like, what would you do if you had to prep for like the most important meeting in your life? Yeah. Right. What would you do? Right. Minus yep. drinking coffee or something like that. But like, what would you do to get your body? Like, if you know you got to fucking be at your A game, well, you should probably do something like that to get ready for like a big ceremony too. In, in a way totally. that's like, from like a Zen point of view though, like really yeah. like, like yeah, I'm open I, to it. I'm open to this. Right. And like, and it's too, it's setting yourself up for success really. And like success might mean a little bit of a miserable experience, but what you're doing is like you said, you have to be that open channel. And you have to do, like, you know what to do to be that open channel. For me, like with microdosing, for example, I will never microdose on a day that I don't exercise. So if it's an off day at the gym, not going to happen. Because I know that I need that, like, quote, release or like I need, because I know how, how much exercise affects my mentality that uh. I know going in, like, I need to have that, I need to get my mind to that point before I can be fully receptive to the medicine. That's such a good point. I'm so glad you said that, dude, because like I've done it some days and some days it fucks with me. Some days I'm like, oh, I, f- I don't want to be in this right now. I can feel yeah. like it's like, and, yeah. And I'm like, why do I, there's only so, it's such a little amount. But in some days I'm like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm rocking this. I feel good. Uh-huh. And like, you don't even feel it, but you're right. Like, I think it's the days where 
where like I don't do the exercise first or something. And then I tried to play with like, should I eat without, should I do an empty stomach? Shouldn't I, should I have coffee? Shouldn't I? And then it all comes down to, you're right. It's like, well, why would you take something if you're not in your right state? Yeah. You take it. Like that's even microdosing. You're almost, it's kind of like when you do a fast, like if you do like a 72 hour fast, but you eat like pizza and donuts the night before, you're basically not even fasting. Like your, your body's going to spend the next three days digesting those carbs and sugar. The best thing you can do for a fast is like go keto for the week before and then go into the fast. Like it's the same way with the ceremony, like do the things you know are going to provide you with the best experience. And that means whatever the experience, like just give yourself the full experience. Mm. If you have things that are blocking you, it's not going to be the full experience. Mm. Yeah, dude. So what are you working on now? And walk us through a little bit of what you're working on and, you know, how people can check you out and find you out. Find yeah, out cool. Um, so I have two things going on right now. One is the, uh, I'm the founder of the Unbreakable Human Collective, which it, it shifted into the Unbreakable. It, it was the Unbreakable Man before. And then when quarantine happened, I, I, it really became clear to me. I got a download actually in a microdose that like, we are a collective. Like, you know, they always say that, that um, the quote, like there's no I in team, but there is a me. And it's always like a, it has like a negative connotation, but in reality, like the me and team is where it all starts. So as a, as a human collective, um, and I still work primarily with men as a human, as a, as a collective, we need to like get ourselves right. And like a lot of the work we did with Stefanos and Christine, like getting the masculine feminine energies together. And so I work with a lot of guys on, working on their, on their masculinity and their femininity and like balancing that out and being better husbands, better fathers, better sons, better brothers, like getting them right. But, and, and, and it really comes from my journey of like figuring out what are the things, the stories that you're telling yourself that, you know, are keeping you from getting vulnerable, are keeping you from opening up, are making you angry, are making you, you know, what's holding you back. Cause like, you know, like the bandwidth, everyone has like 100% bandwidth. But if you have some negative stories going on, limiting beliefs, that's taking up at least half your bandwidth that could be used for connection, love, purpose, all that stuff. So what I really do is I work with these guys and I just clear away the crap, clear away the stuff that's clogging up their bandwidth so that they can you know, just basically fill up their bandwidth with what, what really serves them. And then the second thing I'm working on is a, it's a business consulting company. It's called Five to Flow. And it's, um, we, we just launched this week we do, we look at five areas of business. It's people, uh, I'm sorry, people, um, process, culture, analytics, and technology. And I am the head of the culture department. So anything that do with like corporate culture, as far as like, I mean, this goes to anything from like the mental health of the C-level execs down to like architecture of the office, like whatever supports the best environment for work going forward. Um, and so as the Unbreakable Human Collective is that I'm working on Shifting from one-on-one coaching into either to more group coaching, doing some workshops and retreats next year, and then speaking on stages. And I just finished up my uh, my first book. Awesome, thanks, brother. And then yeah, as far as uh, finding me, it is on Instagram is big at Sam Gibbs Morris, and then LinkedIn is also pretty big. It's just my name, Sam Morris. Awesome, man. Thanks, brother. Working on a lot. It's a, it's a great story, man. And I, I love to, you know, bring awareness to all this stuff. Yeah. It's and, conversations we have to have. Yeah. You know, plant medicine, psychedelics can, can really 
solidify a lot of things that we can't really put into words sometimes. Absolutely. I think that's part, that's part of it is like, that's part of the healing is like learning, learning the language and like translating those stories and translating the the blocks. Cause like, you know, like a block can be a very, like, you know, you can't define it, but then you do the psychedelic and you see like what it actually is. And like, you know, it doesn't have to be a block. So would you say before we wrap this up, would you say that psychedelics is what solidifies your sobriety? Good. Yeah. I'm, uh, that's so what's what solidified my sobriety for good was just the pain like the the fact that i knew like that was not something that i i could i felt like continuing to do but what psychedelics did is it it shifted me into like sixth gear with with sobriety with life with everything like i was i was stagnant you know i was stuck at a certain point and um i you know with with aa and doing all the other work i just i got to a point where like i was just kind of like I was stuck. Like there's no other way to put it. Like I just couldn't get to a certain point. So when I started doing psychedelics, like it, it strengthened my sobriety 100%. Like the, I feel stronger in my sobriety than I've ever felt in my life mm-hmm. since I started doing psychedelics. I feel stronger and that. And a lot of that comes with like, I just feel stronger in my purpose, my passion, my, my mental health, like my vision, all of it. And, but the fact that, um, like looking at all that stuff just because you know sobriety like you got to clear away anything that threatens your sobriety is really what it comes down to and so getting into the psychedelics allowed me to see the things like i'm pretty sure i can say this with 100 percent confidence that if i hadn't done that wachuma and come face to face with my addict that i might the 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 chance of going back into it was much higher than it is now if i if i hadn't been willing and gone into that and like you, know, you say like it was the big like that was honestly like you know it's kind of like the the scene from uh, Goodwill Hunting when he's like you know hugging Matt Damon he's like it's not your fault it's not your fault like that was the hug I got from Machuma like it was painful as shit mm. but at the same time it was the hug I needed to like kind of just like let that like let that part of me just fall off into the shadow it's still there and yeah. I, I love it now and I, I learned to like honor it yeah but it's not doesn't have that like hold on me anymore. Mm. Yeah, that get together. I had to go. My energy was just I couldn't handle it. <laughs> I, after after that, I was just too in tune with everybody's energy. I was like, I got to get the yeah. fuck out of here. Yeah, it's the 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 bufo on the river there. That was uh, seriously in tune with a lot of things, nature, energy, all of that. Yeah, I did a, a big dose earlier than that, and then when I came, right, I remember that. When I came to meet you guys, I was kind of like, whoa, life. Yeah, you, you, you were raw. <laughs> I didn't do it again. I didn't do it by the river. I didn't do it again. I was like just leaving it as it was because I was pretty, I was pretty uh, in tune and feeling good. But yeah, you uh, were cracked wide open at that point. Yeah. So that night, I was like, okay, I got to go home and, and download everything. So, but yeah, bro, that's um, powerful stuff, man. And I think right now we're just kind of getting to just the beginning of the the power that these medicines can have in healing and, you know, really getting to the root of the trauma and the, and the looking at the things and the rewiring our neural pathways, you know, the, the saying of, I forget who said it, maybe it was Terrence McKenna, but it's like, we have all these, forgive me if this wasn't him, but we have all these, um, it's like, it's like we're in a, on a ski hill you have all these tracks, right? Which are neural pathways and they just like all of a sudden become 
these tracks and everybody follows the tracks. But then what happens is like a fresh snow dump falls on those tracks and gives you like a fresh surface of snow. So then you can build the, re, the new uh, neural pathways. And that's kind of what psychedelics does as well. It, it kind of like gives you that fresh powdered snow on the ski hill kind of thing. 100%. That's an amazing analogy because it's exactly what it is. Like, you know, like I, I feel like after doing that and like looking at the world, like it looks lighter, it looks brighter. I feel lighter. I've had people tell me like, I don't see darkness in your eyes anymore after working with psychedelics like that. It's, it's like amazing to hear like, really? I feel yeah. it. Cause I feel that way. Like I feel lighter and brighter, but it's just, it's, it's amazing what they can do. Amazing brother. Dude, thank you so much for coming on. I know we've, we've gone for a little while. Um, I really, I really appreciate you, uh, you know, dropping in and sharing the value brother. Man, thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. Yeah. I love, love it, it, man. If, if you could leave the listeners with one takeaway, I always ask this final question. Out of all the challenges, struggles, and adversity that you've gone through, and you had to, you had to unpack one lesson, what is one lesson that adversity has taught you? Uh, wow, that's a really good one. And I, what's coming up is um, always allow yourself to be a beginner. Like everyone, everyone always needs to understand that like no matter what you're doing, if you've been married for 15 years, if you've spent 20 years at a job, if you can look at every day for opportunities to be a beginner and progress, you will get further along than you ever thought by saying, by, by, by saying, I don't know, you will get further than pretending that you do know. You know, like Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, like those guys after winning championships, they would go back to the gym. How can I get better? Basically say, how can I be a beginner again? You know, and it's just, there's so much power in just taking that step, taking that approach of I'm a beginner. What can I learn here? Yeah. I love it. Student of life, man. So we got to go. be curious student. Yeah, for sure, man. Love it, brother. Thank you so much, man. I, uh, so stoked to see you and your journey and how it all unfolds, brother. Thank you so much for having me, man. This was freaking awesome. My pleasure. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Make sure to check out Sam. Go follow him on Instagram. Check out his work. He's awesome. And if you got value from this, please leave us a review on Apple. Share this with a friend if you got value also. And subscribe wherever you're listening. It's always appreciated. I love you guys. We will catch you next time.